0: Five weeks ago, Ollie Robinson's career couldn't have been going better. He'd been selected to play cricket for England, and in the course of that first test against Australia, he took seven wickets and he scored 42 runs. Um, For those of you who know, that's that's actually a a really good thing, a decent thing to, to do in the course of the test match. However, it was not only the highest moment of his career, it also became the lowest. Tweets he had posted as an 18-year-old, nine years earlier, had come to life, come to light rather. They were racist, they were sexist, they were thoroughly objectionable. So he was fined, he was removed from the test squad, he was banned for eight matches. And the question is, how does Ollie Robinson find redemption? How does he find forgiveness in the eyes of society? Two months earlier, Noel Clarke was at the Albert Hall in London. He was receiving a BAFTA for Outstanding British Contribution to Cinema. It's one of the highest awards that BAFTA has to give. Noel Clarke was a writer, producer, director, and actor. He'd been in Doctor Who for over five years, but it emerged That there were credible allegations of verbal abuse, of bullying, and of sexual harassment. Within days, his award was removed. Within days, his work was pulled from television. They were even showing at the time a series uh, that he was involved with, they pulled it. It didn't even go to its conclusion. Sky and other companies removed him from their productions and no one in entertainment will now employ him. The question is, how does Noel Clarke find redemption and forgiveness? Double murderer Colin Pitchfork will be allowed to leave prison after having been jailed for life for strangling 15-year-olds Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth in Leicestershire in 1983 and 1986. He served 33 years in prison, and the parole board have declared that he is safe. But the local MP stated this, even though some 30 years have passed, This isn't the sort of crime that one can ever forget. And last Tuesday, the government went to the courts to try to overturn the parole board's decision, but they failed. My question is, how does Colin Pitchfork find redemption and forgiveness? And maybe the even bigger question for some here this morning is how do you deal with your past? How do you find redemption and forgiveness for those things that you're ashamed of? Maybe you're haunted by some foolish actions and decisions. Maybe you dread your digital fingerprints reappearing from things you said and posted on social media because you know they can never be erased. My friends, where do you go with your issues? And this was the question facing the small bunch of exiles who'd returned to their ancestral homeland, having spent 70 years away, at least two to three generations away, in Babylonia, some had returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel and they'd eventually managed to rebuild their temple which was so important and so central to their corporate life together, others under Ezra who was sort of a secretary of state for religious affairs in the Persian government, they had returned about 60 years later. And then Nehemiah had been posted as governor there 13 years after Ezra and his bunch had come. And the big question they faced was how could they ever be forgiven for the things that caused Israel to go into exile for the first, in the first place. Their shame was overwhelming. They felt so small. They were surrounded by derisive enemies on all sides, as we saw last week. And so the questions arose. Were they really God's people? Were they really accepted by him? And it's the events in Nehemiah, chapters 8 to 9, the chapters that we've read earlier, that give us the answer, not only to their problem, but to ours as well. It all starts on the first day of the seventh month. The wall repairs under Nehemiah had finished six days earlier. And the Israelites come together as one from all the outlying villages to hear Ezra, the nation's spiritual leader, read from the law of Moses. Listen to how it's recorded there in Nehemiah 7. Uh, Again, the last sentence of that chapter through to Verse 4. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion now what what what's happening here in this scene that's being described for us because this is clearly not spontaneous You see, a high wooden platform has already been erected for this purpose. Actually, what becomes apparent is that for the past 13 years, Ezra has been teaching the people about the history of their nation and about their law, the law of Moses. For we realize, actually, that this gathering is in obedience to what the law commanded. In fact, when you go to that law, particularly there in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, we read this, the the fifth of those books, Deuteronomy 31. I'll read from verse 9. So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levitical priests, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, in the year for cancelling debts, during the festival of tabernacles, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So you see, this gathering that we're looking at, this gathering in Jerusalem under Ezra is at the very time that was stipulated by Moses back there in uh, the law book of Deuteronomy. And the people's insistence that Ezra should bring out the law and read it to them flows from what they had learned from this command. But, but actually there's another echo to this from their history that we're also meant to remember here. And that leads me to my first point, which is this. God's word points to the true king. God's word points to the true king. See, I don't know if you noticed, but although reading God's law to the people was commanded by Moses, the building of a platform to do it from wasn't. It's not there in that passage in Deuteronomy. So the fact that they made this platform, is not just a, a sort of a practical, pragmatic thing to make sure everyone could see and hear or is there something else going on well go back to the original dedication of the first temple by Solomon for we read this in 2 Chronicles part of Israel's previous history there in 2 Chronicles 6 verses 12 to 13 then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands now he had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. So what you have here is Israel's king standing on The platform, you see, it was the king who issued regulations. It was the king who guided the nation's life. It was the king that you looked to. But in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, there is no king. Their kings have been killed. There is no longer anyone who makes claim to be King David's successor. So who guides? Who who do you look to. Well, the inference here is clear. It's not Ezra. It's not any of the other 13 Levites who are standing on the platform with him. It's God's word. And the people respond to that word as they would to a king. They stand in its presence and they bow down in homage. Nehemiah 8 verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You see, here's the people recognizing the huge shift that has taken place in their national history. No longer will there be kings to tell them what to do. God's word moves to the center of their national life. Pointing them to Yahweh, Jehovah. He's their king. Ruling through his word. And so it is for God's people today. We're not to be controlled by powerful individuals or big personality leaders, the the evangelical church sections of the evangelical church even at this moment have have just been devastated by these great big charismatic, I use the word with a small c charismatic leaders, you know big personalities and sort of inviting this personality cult, follow me and then suddenly discover that these are very flawed individuals who abuse and misuse their power now we're not to be controlled by such people. Oh, because the leader, the preacher, the teacher said it and we love him. No, no, no. It's going to be God's truth that shapes us and leads us and teaches us. See, that's why we need to have our Bibles open. That's why I say to you, when you come to church, please have your Bible open. The fact that someone from this pulpit says something, you don't have to believe it because they say it. You believe it because This says it. If what we are saying is in keeping with the word of God, then you follow it. We need to check out what's being said. And we must be obedient to that word in every area of our lives. There there are some churches that I've been to. Uh, I particularly remember... Uh, a church in America, in California, that I went to. And, and the practice is that when it comes to the reading of the Bible, everyone stands. And it was a bit of a shock at the time. I wasn't expecting that. But we stood, and then I thought, "Actually, this, ah, this is pretty good. I, I like this. This makes a lot of sense. I understand why you're doing it. You see, in our services, this is the only time when the Bible is read when we can be sure that God is actually speaking. And therefore, there's a seriousness and there's a reverence about it. God is speaking through his words. And my friends, the question is this. Have you put yourself under God's authority or are you still following your own collective wisdom that suits you? Because so often the reality is we, we, we take a bit of experience hair and a bit of wisdom and a bit of pub gossip there and we put it all together in some big mishmash and we say yeah this is how I guide my life and that can be so flawed, it can be so downright stupid at times, whereas we need to be those who follow the word of God who take it seriously who let God's wonderful word guide us okay let's move to my second point which is this, God's word exposes our painful rebellion God's word exposes our painful rebellion. It doesn't just point us to the true king. At the same time, it exposes our painful rebellion. Because Ezra and his Levitical attendants took great care to make sure that everyone could understand what they were hearing. It even seems there may have been a group of Levites who moved among the crowd, explaining and applying what the people were hearing. Um, it, it, It seems likely that during the Reading of these scrolls, it wasn't books with pages, but scrolls that Ezra were doing. There, there would be some breaks, maybe for Ezra to get a glass of water or for the next scroll to be brought up and for its place to be found. And, and there would be these Levites and they would be going amongst the people who would be standing there. And they'd be going, do you understand this? Do you realize what it means for you? Do you realize this is how it can be applied to your life? And, and, and this was a painful business for the people. We read this in Nehemiah 8. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear, and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listen to the words of the law, weeping as they listen to the words of the law. You see, this is what God's word can do. It exposes our rebellion and sin. As it were, it excavates the human heart and it cuts through all our excuses and all our self-righteousness and it reveals to us how deeply and actively sinful we really are. I don't know if you listened to Colin Rogerson's message last Sunday evening. It was so helpful. And Colin was saying, you know, the authentic self, when you dig down and you uncover the authentic self, the authentic self, my friends, is not something to be proud of and gloried in. Our authentic self is deeply broken. You see, the tragedy is that so many have such a superficial view of God's law. They just regard it as a sort of a code for living. Oh yeah, I try and do my best because that's what the Bible teaches. Whereas the Apostle Paul is clear, he writes this in Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, get this, through the law we become conscious of sin. See, the law is not there to make you feel good about yourself, you know? As if you come to the end of the day and then, oh look, I can tick off all the ways that I've managed to keep God's law. Haven't I done well? No, the law is there to show us how deceitful our hearts really are. And how our inclination all the time is to bend away from God's righteousness. And that's what the people gathered together in front of Ezra saw. They realized how individually, they realized how corporately they had rebelled time after time. They realized that the difficult times they were going through were precisely what they deserved. Little wonder they were heartbroken. Little wonder the tears poured down as God's word did its work on their hearts. And let me just ask you, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever seen yourself before a holy God? Has God's word ever cut through all your excuses and all your boasting and all your positive thinking? Do you know, I'm so grateful for the array of diagnostic tools that hospitals use. Some of them aren't pleasant at all. I can vouch for that from personal experience. Some are downright painful. But if it leads to an accurate diagnosis of my condition, then I'm really grateful. See, I don't want a doctor who just takes a look at me and says, okay, Andy, you look all right, off you go. (laughs) No, no, no. I want the tests that expose my true medical condition. And that's what... God's Word does. Do you want to know how you really are doing? I'm not talking here medically. I'm talking about you, your personality, your soul before a living God. Do you want to really know? Then you go to God's Word. You go to the law. And it exposes our weakness and our failure and our sin and our inclination all the time to bend away from righteousness. So God's Word exposes our painful Rebellion, But thirdly, wonderfully, God's word reveals God's heart of love. God's word reveals God's heart of love. See, Nehemiah the governor is present at this gathering. In fact, it's the only time when Nehemiah and Ezra, we find them overlapping in the passage. And Nehemiah sees how God's word is cutting people to the heart. As the people are seeing the depth of their sin. And they're weeping. He sees this and he speaks some of the greatest words recorded in Scripture. Nehemiah chapter 8. I'll read from verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. And it's that phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength, which is remarkable. See, on the the surface, it looks like one of those meaningless cliches that litters Christian conversation. You know, someone comes up to you, oh, don't worry, brother or sister, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I'm going, what? But actually, when you understand what it says, this is one of the most glorious phrases ever. Let's do some unpacking. First of all, that word strength, the joy of the Lord is your strength, that word strength is most often translated in the Old Testament, actually not as the word strength, but as the word refuge. That's its better meaning. And it makes better sense in this context as well. The people are weeping. They're convicted. What they need is a refuge, somewhere to go with their sin. Secondly, you'll find the name Lord, the the joy of the Lord. If you've got your Bible open, you will see it's in capital letters. Unlike the uh, word Lord in the previous line, which which is a different Hebrew word. And that word Lord, Yahweh, is all about God being the one who keeps his covenant, who keeps his promises. It's God's covenant name. For thirdly, you see, that then makes sense of the joy of the Lord. What is this joy? It it sounds so vacuous, you know, the joy of the Lord. But in the context, we can now see that this joy is all about God's covenant relationship with his people. It's God's joy in them. So what are the people to do with their tears and with their sadness as they realize how badly they've broken their side of the covenant with God? They're to find their refuge in the truth that God's part of the covenant means he delights in them. Let me give you sort of another translation. God's joy in you will be your refuge when you feel devastated. God's joy in you will be your refuge when you feel devastated. Now, this is glorious. This is amazing. This is the best thing you will ever hear, not just today, but any day. This is our God. But but maybe you're finding it somewhat mystifying. You pictured Almighty God as that very stern, unsmiling, grandfatherly figure who's always ready to beat you down whenever you fail. My friends, how wrong could you be? (laughs) That's just a lie from Satan that needs immediate correction in your mind. In fact, when you go over to chapter 9, you'll find a more detailed commentary of chapter 8. As we hear the Levites really sort of summarizing what's been going on in a most wonderful prayer. And that prayer book is, that prayer rather is bookended by references to the covenant. You'll see it's all in recognition of the covenant. So it begins of Nehemiah 9 verse 8. You, that is God, made a covenant with him, that is Abraham, to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites. So it starts with the covenant. And then the rest of this prayer is working out God's covenant with the people. And then you get to verse 32, the other bookend. And it says, now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant. Here's the explanation. His covenant of love. That's it. That's the covenant. A covenant of love. In fact, just look at some of the descriptions that lie between this covenant sandwich. Right in the middle. Chapter 9, verse 17. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate and abounding in love. Verse 19. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them. Verse 25, they reveled in your great goodness. Verse 27, in your great compassion you gave them deliverers. Verse 28, in your compassion you delivered them time after time. Verse 31, but in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now do you get it? That's God's side of the covenant it's to love and it's to delight in his children the prophet uh, Zephaniah put it like this Zephaniah 3 verse 16 on that day they will say to Jerusalem do not fear Zion do not let your hands hang limp the Lord your God is with you the mighty warrior who saves he will take great delight in you In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. He will rejoice over you. And the Jews knew that. In fact, as they'd been listening through to the law that Ezra was opening up before them, they knew that God made himself known to Moses. They know that part of Israel's history where Moses said to Yahweh, and He said, Lord, who are you? Really, I want to know you. And the Lord said, I will, I'll reveal myself to you. I'll let you know who I am. And we read this in Exodus 34 from verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming. Now here it is. Here is God's self-revelation. Get it. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And they no doubt would have remembered the promises given by Isaiah, one of the more recent prophets in their history. There in Isaiah 55, verse 6 Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to your God for he will freely pardon. My friends, here's what to do with your sin. Here's what to do with your guilt and your shame and your failure. Here's the one to run to. Here's where you find redemption and forgiveness. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friend, this isn't just a promise for the people in Ezra's time broken by the law as they saw their sin. This is a promise for you and for me. The God of love has made a way to justly deal with sin and to reconcile us to himself. And his name is Jesus. And the way is the cross where Jesus Christ The God-man, truly man, truly God, came and died in the place of rebels and failures and sinners like you, like me. And he took what we deserve. He took our hell and our sin and our separation. And we are credited remarkably with his obedience, with his righteousness. How amazing. How stupendous. And my friends, this invitation is for you. As we've seen, the writer says, let them turn to the Lord, for he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. You might be here this morning and you're saying, no one could forgive me. If you, Andy, if you knew the stuff I'd done. Oh. Andy, this is lovely for decent people, nice people, middle class people, whatever. But it's not for me. Oh, I tell you, there is love and there is forgiveness and there is mercy for you even for you. But having seen that God's word reveals God's heart of love, let me close. My final point is this. God's word encourages our confident response. God's word encourages our confident response. You see, what we're dealing with is stunning news. It is amazing grace that Almighty God in his mind-blowing love has made a way to forgive us our rebellion and to adopt us as his children. And when we've got that, when we realize how much God loves undeserving and broken people like us, when we realize that his love has been set upon us in unbreakable ways, we'll see everything in a new and different light. Go back to to, to Nehemiah, if you like. Just see how, how in this covenant prayer they address God, how they understand who He is and what He's done. If you want a Bible study to do today or over the course of this week, just go through all the references to where they are addressing God. Let me just give you some of them. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens. You give life to everything. You saw you heard it's there three times you sent you divided the sea you hurled their pursuers you led them you came down you spoke that occurs four times you gave you gave them bread occurs twice you brought them water occurs twice you did not desert them occurs three times, you sustain them, you warn them, occurs twice, and there are many more such references. You see, when you become a child of God, when you see his loving hand in action everywhere, you understand he is not distant, he is not far removed, but rather your loving heavenly father is constantly at work for his glory and for your good and for your blessing. And that's why to respond in prayer is the most natural, childlike thing to do. It's what Ezra did in Ezra chapter 9. It's what Nehemiah did in Nehemiah 1 verse 4. We read this, he he writes, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, his natural response was, Who do I go to with this bad news? I'm going to speak to God because of his love. Because I know he's in charge and he's in, he's loving and I'll bring it to him. Or he writes this in Nehemiah 2 verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? He writes, and I prayed to the God of heaven. And that clearly was one of those sort of, Lord help me prayers. And Why? Because he had that relationship because he knew God is loving and is in control. So he just said, Lord help. Nehemiah 4 verses 8 to 9. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. It's what you do. You see, you just immediately take it back to God because he rules and he loves. Nehemiah 6 verse 9, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. (laughs) It's just the most natural response. Because God is loving. It's His commitment to us. And He rules. You see, prayer isn't something done just in a religious building, it's something that comes naturally to those who have entered into this relationship with the loving, living God. We speak, we share, we cry out knowing that he listens, knowing that he loves. My Christian brother and sister, do you understand how much your heavenly father loves you? Have you grasped that he couldn't love you more than he does? He couldn't love you more. The infinite God of infinite love couldn't love you more than he does. Right now, right now, whatever your situation, whatever you've done, if you're his child, he couldn't love you more than he does right now. And he couldn't love you less. Have you realized that his delight is in you? And that the very heart of Jesus is wrapped up in your blessing Have you been listening to the studies that we've been going through? Paul's been taking us through in the Song of Songs, this great declaration of love. Just let it sink in, let it soak into your being. I am loved. Now that really goes against the grain. Our experience of love is, yeah, I can feel like that if I've sort of deserved it or merited it, but to understand that I as a failure and a sinner and a screw-up, that I am loved by Almighty God. More than I could possibly imagine. Wow. In his uh, wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, and if you haven't got and read that book, you must, really. It's a wonderful book. Gentle and Lowly. Dane Ortland quotes the great Puritan Thomas Goodwin, who states that Christ's, now get this, Christ's own joy comfort happiness and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. You see, when you go to Jesus and you say, Oh, Lord Jesus, I've done it again. Messed it up again. Lord Jesus, you know the problems and the troubles. It increases his joy for him to lean into your need. It increases his happiness to love you. This is mind-blowing. What a Savior. So talk to him. Open your hearts to him. Whatever situation you face, however many the tears you shed. Look, I know that some of you here In this congregation, even sat here in front of us, you're going through really tough times. It's heartbreaking. There are things some of you will only share with a few who are really close to you. It's difficult to make sense of. My friends, oh, that we would have our eyes open to see the love of God. Folks like us and to go to him and speak to him and call out to him and to delight in him. My friends, come to him. And a final word to Ollie and Noel and Colin and all those listening who are desperate for forgiveness and redemption. There is one you can go to. There is one who heals the broken hearted. There is one who offers new life to all who will trust in Jesus. My friends, seek him now. Call out to him. And he will answer. He promises he will answer. He promises he won't turn any away. Whatever your situation, you may not be a Christian. You may say, I've held out against him all my life. My friends, come now. Come to the one who invites you, the one of love. And find his forgiveness. My Christian brother or sister, come. Come now to the one who says, why are you handling that problem on your own? I love you. Call out to me. Rest in me. Come, come to him now. Let's pray. Father, we can hardly take it in. We need Holy Spirit help to open our eyes to grasp the height, length, breadth, and depth of your incredible love. It is so far beyond our own human experience, and yet we thank you that this is revealed in your word. Lord, thank you that your salvation is not something we could ever earn. Father, we couldn't, we couldn't. Our sin stains us through and through. But we thank you for that remarkable offer of forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that many of us here, many listening, have come to new life in Christ. And Father, we pray many more would, even in these coming minutes, as they seek you. And Father, for those who are hurting, have mercy. Draw close so that they would be able to again freshly understand the wonderful grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we ask these things. Amen.